from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 29th. Today, protests continue after the death of George Floyd, the legacy of a call to the cops, and a painting we're thinking about this week. I'm in a city that's on fire. Holly Bailey is a national political reporter for The Post. There's been countless protests, which just seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. Holly is in Minneapolis, covering the protests over the police killing of George Floyd. What happened here began on Monday. What we know about the event, it was on Chicago and 38th Street here in South Minneapolis. There was a local grocery store, Cup Foods, who had apparently made a call, some sort of forgery call. There was an altercation between George Floyd, an African-American man, and four officers from the Minneapolis Police Department. It was captured on video. How long y'all gotta hold him down? Why are you doing drugs, kids? It ain't about drugs, bro. The video shows George Floyd being pinned to the ground by a white police officer. The white police officer's knee to his neck, and George Floyd is struggling and he's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe, my face. Just get up. The white police officer just isn't moving, he has his hands in his pocket. And it's this long, excruciating video in which George Floyd eventually goes limp, and he later dies. The video, frankly, is just, like, excruciating to watch. And just the fact that it all kind of transpires in one long shot from this person who was taking this video, it's just, it's, it's just hard to see. It's definitely hard to see. And listening to people talk about it here. wanted to take a moment to speak with all of you today uh, to answer any questions from the press. The mayor of Minneapolis, well Jacob Frey, has been incredibly emotional Ford. about it in recent days. And I've wrestled with more than anything else over the last 36 hours one fundamental question. Why is the man who killed George Floyd not in jail. If you had done it, or I had done it, we would be behind bars right now. And I cannot come up with a good answer to that question. And so I'm calling on Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman to act on the evidence before him. I'm calling on him to charge the arresting officer in this case. One thing that was very interesting about this case is how quickly the department, the city of Minneapolis, moved to fire the four officers involved. All four have been identified, but much of the focus has been on Derek Chauvin, who was the white police officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And what has happened is that there have been increasing calls, you know, not just for these officers to be fired, but for these officers to be arrested and charged. And that is really what has been leading to the tensions here. So these protests, what have they been looking like and how have they evolved over the past few days? On Tuesday night, it started out mostly peaceful. People gathered outside Cup Foods. 
thousands of people, and then they marched to the third police precinct about a mile or so away from the site, which is where the police officers had been based out of. And there was some tensions there. Some of the people that had gathered threw rocks and bottles at police police cars. And police then greeted them outside the precinct dressed in full riot gear, which did not go down very well. And some city officials here said that this ratcheted up things. The next day, Wednesday, it started out, again, mostly peaceful. People gathering outside the third precinct along Lake Avenue here in South Minneapolis. But then as night started to fall, things really took a turn. The crowds swelled. And police officers, they were on the roof of the precinct building and they were surrounding the building and they were trying to do crowd control. They were firing rubber bullets and tear gas. But around the neighborhood, it began to just fall into complete chaos. There was a Target store that people rushed into and was looted, a cup food store, an Aldi grocery store where people just began to rush in and loot merchandise. I saw people with carts entirely full of items, groceries, and the police did not appear to be doing anything to stop this from happening. And was there rationale there that they just like didn't want to get into more altercations with protesters or people who were out in the streets that they were worried about that escalating into something more violent? There's not been a lot of explanation, and this is part of the tensions here in recent days, for why the police behave that way. I realize that many right now in our city are experiencing trauma and a range of emotions. And gatherings are a very natural uh, space for folks to share those experiences. Chief Arredondo, who was installed a few years ago and was hired basically and talked about how he wanted to change the culture of the police department. He's been out in recent days just trying to emphasize that he wants to give people here the right to express their anger and their frustration at what had happened and their emotion. The Minneapolis Police Department will continue to ensure the safeguards of everyone's First Amendment, but that cannot be at the expense of others' personal safety. But it does seem that there was this sort of, you know, guard the police station, but yet let the neighborhood sort of dissolve into chaos around them. And that's caused a Mm. lot of controversy. And then, of course, all of this kind of continued into Thursday night and early Friday morning. On Wednesday night, overnight into Thursday morning, buildings around that area began to be set on fire. First, there was an auto zone that was burned. Then people jumped the fence at this multi-story apartment building that had been under construction, a place that was supposed to be for affordable housing in a neighborhood that needs it. And that went up in flames. They burned bars, a lot of residents out trying to spray down their houses because they were worried because it's been very windy about embers hitting their houses and setting them on fire. It just was complete chaos. And on Thursday morning, We woke up to a city basically covered in ash. It was gray and smoky and hazy. 
and city officials went before the cameras, the mayor, the police chief, and begged for peace. But as they were speaking, we saw fires and looting begin in other parts of the Twin Cities area, including just across the border in neighboring St. Paul, where there was a huge protest or standoff between police and protesters there, a lot of looting up University Avenue in a neighborhood called Midway. And it's just continued to spread around the city completely unchecked. I think that a lot of people watching this around the country are both horrified at this video that they saw of George Floyd's killing, but also in some ways, I think, confused by the way that the protests have gone and, and the level of destruction that they've seen in the aftermath. And I'm wondering, for, for protesters that you've been talking to, like, what do they have to say about why this is happening, why there are fires, why there's looting, and why this isn't like the quote-unquote peaceful protest that people say that they want to see? I mean... A lot of people on the streets that I've talked to did come there. They're from here, and they have come to peacefully protest. But they do look at other people, and they say, this is what happens when accountability and tensions, you know, after years and years of the police promising reforms and changes and how people of color treated, this is what happens, anger erupts, and things burn down, and things are destroyed. We got some brothers here that don't want no problems in our community. We don't need you tearing up our community. This is our community. We don't need you tearing up our community, breaking our windows up, and tearing up our streets. You know, the heartbreaking thing about this is is that a lot of those businesses in this area are minority-owned, You know, yesterday I was driving around St. Paul, just a few blocks up from where protesters were already clashing with police and smoke was already rising in in the distance from a fire there. And I saw all these store employees frantically trying to put plywood over their windows. And they had signs that they were hanging on their doors that said community owned or black owned, hoping that they could be spared because they were arguing, we are part of the community and you're you're damaging the community. But that does not seem to be offering any protection. And part of what we've heard from city officials in recent days, they're blaming this on outsiders who are coming in just to store up chaos. They keep citing reports unconfirmed that people have driven in from Chicago or other cities. We don't know that that's true. But what we do know is that just last night, It was a completely surreal scene. The third police precinct, the subject of all of this was abandoned by the police. They jumped the fence. They set a fire. It was going up in flames. And protesters outside were setting off fireworks that went high in the sky and just kind of having this jovial atmosphere around that building and around that neighborhood. It was completely surreal and heartbreaking. And President Trump has been responding to what's been happening in in Minneapolis. What has he been saying? Last night, he sent out a series of tweets calling the leaders here weak. He used the word thugs, saying that people should be arrested. The thing that's interesting here is that it's not that there's going to be any fans of Donald Trump, but there's also a lot of people who are, are on the streets who just aren't also not fans of the mayor and the police chief and still are very critical of even if they acted swiftly to fire these officers, they just are so angry at 
this is just something that keeps happening again and again in the city, this use of deadly force, of excessive force, of charges of racism, and they are angry that nothing ever changes and they don't trust anybody. But y'all want to sit out here and shoot us with rubber bullets and, and tear gas and pepper spray us like we animals. Like we animals. Like y'all used to water hose us. This is a new form of water hosing. And I wonder if that history of people making complaints about the police and not feeling like they've been heard, that that is part of why what we've seen over the past few days has taken this somewhat violent turn, just because of this feeling of like, well, when we protest peacefully, nothing happens. When we make complaints that are the supposed like civic way to complain about people taking our lives, like people don't seem to listen. And so that the only way that you can get people to pay attention is by setting things on fire or by doing things that really scare people. Because I think a lot of people there already feel scared. That's absolutely what people here on the ground have been saying. A few days ago, I talked to Clarence Castle, who was the uncle of Philando Castile, who was shot in his car here by a police officer in the suburbs. And back then, again, city officials, state officials, the police, you know, again, promised changes in the way that people are color, of color are treated. And I spoke to Clarence Castile and he has been, he went on this journey after his nephew was killed where he began attending classes at the police licensing board to understand what exactly is use of force and how officers are trained. He ended up becoming a reserve police officer in St. Paul. And last year he joined this task force as a working group to try to institute reforms to change this culture. And they just a few months ago released a series of recommendations. And when I spoke to him on Wednesday, he just was just so despondent in a way, saying we can come up with all these recommendations, we can try to institute policies, but until the people that have to follow these policies are held accountable for when they break them, nothing is going to change. Holly Bailey is a national political reporter for The Post. I'm Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman. I'm here to announce that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is in custody. On Friday afternoon, officials in Minnesota announced that they have arrested Derek Chauvin, the officer who was filmed kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has been charged by the Hennepin County Attorney's Office with murder and with manslaughter. Questions? Uh, Yes, what charge of murder? He has been charged with third-degree murder. We are in the process of continuing to review the evidence. There may be subsequent charges later. So when you think about the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, what connection do you see there to this thing that happened in Central Park? I think what was particularly alarming about this video and the timing of this video is that this was happening in the same weekend as the Amy Cooper incident. And and the fear for many Black Americans is that 
someone like an Amy Cooper calling 911, you know, activating the police could result in the very situation that ends in George Floyd's tragic death at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. Erin Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th, a news organization focused on women, politics, and policy. In many people's minds, those two situations were absolutely directly related. So for those who haven't seen it, what was this incident that happened at Central Park and who is Amy Cooper? So Amy Cooper was, until this week, Vice President Franklin Templeton Investments. And she was also the owner of a dog named Henry, whom she was walking in Central Park when she comes in contact with Christian Cooper, who is a Black man who is also an avid bird watcher. And that is what he was doing uh, when the two crossed paths in Central Park. And we should point out that Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper have no relation to each other. And so Christian Cooper sees Amy Cooper with her dog, who is not on a leash, in a part of the park where the dog should have been on leash. And so he asks her to leash the dog. She refuses to do so and then says to him that if he does not leave her alone, she's going to call 911 and tell them specifically that an African-American man is threatening her. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording me. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. The exchange on video lasts about a minute. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm in a ramble, and there's a man, African-American, who has a bicycle helmet. He's recording me and threatening me and my dog. Her voice becomes pitched and escalates. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He's recording me and threatening myself and my dog. While she's making this call, she can hear the dog and see the dog straining against this collar. I'm sorry, I can't hear you that. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. I'm in Central Park in the ramble. I don't know. Thank you. She does put the dog on the on the leash at the end of the video. Christian Cooper says thank you, and then the video ends. So what was your reaction when you saw this video? I had a couple of reactions. My first reaction was that that this scenario was certainly not anything new. We have seen, especially in recent years, white people, white women in particular, calling the police on Black people for all kinds of infractions, uh, perceived infractions, right? Um, yeah, I'd like to report that someone is illegally using a charcoal drill in a non-designated area on... Whether it is, you know, um, barbecuing while Black. I'd like it dealt with immediately. Or, you know, golfing while Black. Remove yourself from our premises please, please. in the next five minutes, please. Sure. Because the authorities the authority okay. have been called. Just, All right. Call. Trying to meet at Starbucks while Black. What did they get called for? Because there are two Black guys sitting here meeting me? I mean, these are things that have become familiar hashtags on social media for Black folks as, as white folks have tried to activate the police to come and deal with Black people who they deem to be out of place or doing something that, that they feel that that Black person shouldn't be doing. Uh, I guess my second reaction was just that it felt surreal to me that this would be occurring in the midst of a pandemic. I think Black people were already kind of processing the disproportionate rate at which Black people are being infected by and killed by coronavirus. But in recent weeks, we have seen 
a number of, of racial and racist incidents that have in some cases even been deadly or at least threatening to Black people. And so just kind of the emergence of this pandemic within a pandemic that has happened in cases like the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper exchange, that was also on my mind. As you pointed out, this is a thing that we've seen so many times before, right? These videos of a white woman calling the cops on a Black person, oftentimes a Black man. And it's almost become its own sort of genre of meme, right? Like there's like Barbecue Becky and then like the gifts of like the Karen calling the cops. And it, it almost becomes funny until, as, as you point out, you realize what the potential consequences of that are and how deadly they can be. And so I, I'm wondering, when we look back historically, what is the context to these kinds of interactions and the way that they've played out in history? Yeah, I think that right now you do have kind of this, you know, the Karen effect, that phenomenon really kind of dominating social media. But in fact, this is really part of a longer legacy of of a very fraught and violent history in our country that really you can trace all the way back to slavery. Just the idea that white womanhood is something to be protected and defended, and also that white women should be fearful of black men, that is something that is in the American imagination. This was the whole premise of, of D.W. Griffith's very racist film, Birth of a Nation, but it was also the central plot in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I mean, like, that trial was about the very scenario that, that fits into some of these patterns that we've seen today. Now, will you identify the man who beat you? Most certainly will. Sitting right yonder. And in thinking through the Amy Cooper story, To Kill a Mockingbird was one of the first things that came to mind for me, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite stories of all time. Tom, will you stand up, please? Let Miss Mayola have a good long look at you. And I thought to myself, you know, how would things have been different if Tom Robinson had had a cell phone camera, you know? Hmm. Because you think about that whole story. I mean, they're both on the witness stand. It's a he said, she said. Tom, will you please catch it with your left hand? I can't, sir. Why can't you? I can't use my left hand at all. I got it caught in a cotton gin when I was 12 years old. All my muscles were tore loose. If Tom Robinson had had a cell phone camera, maybe he would have been able to show that he was not the aggressor or the perpetrator in that in that situation, right? But at the same time, if Mayella Ewell had had a cell phone, she would have called 911, and maybe Tom Robinson would have been dead before he would have even made it to a courtroom. I got something to say. And then I ain't gonna say no more. He took advantage of me. So this is not just in the American imagination, but there have actually been, you know, historical instances where this has happened. I mean, there are numerous documented instances of lynchings where a white person's false accusation towards a black person has proven deadly. Uh, but then also, uh, most famously for, for many people in American history was the case of 14-year-old Emmett Till, you know, who is in Money, Mississippi, visiting relatives and, you know, was accused of whistling at a white woman outside of a grocery store and ends up dead in the bottom of the Tallahatchie River at the hands of two white racists who killed him for this supposed infraction. And in fact, we find out in 2017, uh, Carolyn Bryant confesses that that she, in fact, lied about him whistling at at her in front of this grocery store, the, the incident that was the catalyst for his tragic death. 
I think that to me was so much of, of my reaction to seeing this video, that it's not only that, that what transpired between these two people in Central Park demonstrates this, this irrational fear that white women have, particularly of black men, but, but even more so their understanding of their ability to use white womanhood as a weapon to be wielded. The way that she talks to him and, and threatens that she's going to call the police, like, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. And that it's clear from the tone of her voice that she understands the power that she has in this situation and the power of that narrative. And it's just amazing to see that play out even now in a way that is so explicit and harkens back to so many things throughout history. Absolutely. I agree with everything that you said. And also just the idea that there have to be very few people in America who are not aware of of what could potentially happen when law enforcement is called and, and respond to a situation with a Black person, a Black man in particular, even though most of us are aware of that, even though many of us would think that that her behavior was racist because she knew what she was doing when she was invoking the police in that way and when she was using her voice in that way to sound fearful, it still keeps happening. And I think that the reason that it keeps happening is because uh, it works. So then what do you think has changed here? Like, do you feel like these situations are playing out differently now than they would have a decade ago or 100 years ago? They absolutely are playing out differently. Like I said before, because you now have proof in the form of these cell phone videos, I mean, technology has just been a huge game changer, frankly, for for many Black Americans who are trying to show that, that this is not just about their feelings, but this is about facts and letting people see the exchange for themselves and to see that they were not, in fact, criminal. They were the victim in this situation. But also, you know, the idea there are now consequences and there's now shame around this behavior, right? I mean, it was certainly an imperfect apology, but but you did have Amy Cooper expressing regret for her behavior. Within hours, she had surrendered her dog as a result of this and was placed on administrative leave by her employer. And within a day, she was fired from her job for this exchange because, you know, her her employer wanted to make it clear that they did not tolerate this kind of behavior from one of their employees. And so, you know, 100 years ago, neither one of those scenarios would have been imaginable. And yet today they are. So I think that that, that at least is some form of progress. This is a teachable moment for white women in America who, in many cases, have not maybe previously thought about the fraught and violent history of the the idea of the protection and defense of white womanhood, but also what their role in, in perpetuating that might be. And so for white women who, who either want to do better or who want to help the white women in their lives do better, I think that this is a moment to really reflect on that and, and act. Aaron Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th. And now, one more thing from art critic Sebastian Smee about a painting from the 60s that feels resonant today. 
It hangs in the Picasso Gallery in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it's by African-American artist Faith Ringgold. Ringgold's painting is six feet high and 12 feet across. It's huge. It's also shocking. It shows about a dozen men, women and children caught up in a chaotic scene of terrible violence. There are guns and knives. Some people are running, some have fallen. There's blood spattering everything. It's called American People Series Number 20, Die. Ringel painted it in 1967. It was the 20th and by far the most ambitious in a series that was responding to the state of the nation at that time as she saw it. Specifically to the race riots that had broken out again in 1967, not only in Detroit and Newark, but really all over the country. Maybe the first thing to say is that although the painting's violent, it's not all that realistic. It's stylized and kind of deliberately naive looking. More like a Quentin Tarantino film than an actual documentary photograph. The second is that there's a specific reason MoMA has hung it in the Picasso gallery. And that's that it was inspired by Picasso. Guernica. That was his great protest painting against the barbarity of the Civil War in his native country. Faith Ringgold was worried about Civil War too, in America. Before it was returned to Spain, Picasso's Guernica used to hang in New York at MoMA. Ringgold says she would visit it there almost every week. The violence and the chaos that it depicted spoke to what she was seeing on the street. To her, it felt like things were falling apart. And in fact, the very next year, a government report warned that America was, quote, moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Ringgold, I think, wanted to make sure that everyone understood that they were all implicated in this situation. So she painted whites and blacks together, victims and perpetrators, all mixed up and caught up in the same terrifying predicament. What is happening is people are trying to maintain their position in life, either rightly or wrongly, trying to keep one group down, one group is trying to keep the other from advancing, another group is trying to maintain their position, another group is trying to get out of the way. So you've got all of these things that are happening. Everybody is involved. Nobody gets away without the struggle. There is a struggle. Freedom is not free. Everybody is going to have to pay a price to be free. To her, the riots weren't just a case of poor people breaking into stores. They were a result of all sorts of things, white flight, urban blight, dying industries, and basically just people trying to maintain their position as other people were trying to run away. Everyone was involved, and everyone was scared. Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Post. The painting by Faith Ringgold is called American People Series Number 20, Die. 
You can find a link to an image of the painting at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.